This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com term decolonizing it becomes a blank check to smuggle in whatever doctrines you want because if you find a white person who endorses a doctrine that you disagree with you can just chalk them up to being a colonizer mm-hmm. and and evade the real issue which is what does scripture teach Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. I have a very fun episode for you today. Do you like to read books? Do you like to read books with other like-minded Christians who see the world in a similar way where you can process your thoughts together and then at the end of your time reading the book, have a live stream with the book's author on YouTube and Facebook? If that sounds good, then you might be interested in learning about my book club. Many of you who listen to this podcast on the audio platforms may not be aware that I have a Facebook book club and it's a private group. So whatever you write in there is not going to be blasted across your public Facebook news feed. Uh, But we have close to 3,000 people in our book club where we read through a book over six weeks. And then at the end of our six-week time uh, reading and discussing the book, we have a live stream with the book's author. We've read through my book that way. We've read through Greg Kokel's book, Tactics, that way. And we have just finished reading Thaddeus Williams' book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromise truth. And then we did a live stream with Thaddeus Williams about the book and it was phenomenal. And so in the live stream, essentially it's a Q&A. There's just a little bit of information at the beginning. And then we let the book club, uh, the book club members ask the questions for the live Q&A. And I'm telling you, they asked the best questions. And so we're going to broadcast that for you today on uh, our podcast today. But I also wanted to let you know, if you're interested in joining the group, it's it's a bit exclusive. We don't really advertise it everywhere because we want to keep it small enough that it's like-minded people. So there's a belief statement you have to sign. Uh, There are rules you have to adhere to. This is not the place where people from all kinds of different walks of life and worldviews come together and duke it out with debates. That's not what we're doing in there. These are like-minded Christians, uh, definitely from different denominational backgrounds. We just ask you to affirm a few really basic core gospel things, but this is not a place where progressive Christians and his historic Christians debate each other. This is for like-minded historic Christians to read through books together, to learn, and then to discuss and get to ask the author questions. So 
Every time we finish a book, we open up the book club for two weeks so that more members can join. And then we close it again and we make it hidden so it's completely private. And even while the while the club is open for new members, it's still private. So it's not going to go to uh, your Facebook news feeds. But if you'd like to join us, we are open right now. So you can go to facebook.com slash groups slash Alisa Childers Book Club. Facebook.com slash groups slash Alisa Childers Book Club. Now, I got to tell you, uh, to, in a couple of days, we're going to start reading our new book. And the new book we've selected is Vadi Bokum's Fault Lines. And everybody is really pumped to read that. Now, I can't guarantee that we're going to have a live stream with the author this particular time because, as many of you may know, Dr. Buckham just uh, had open-heart surgery. He's recovering from that. We are hoping that he will be recovered in time to be able to do something like that. But uh, jump on with us. We'll leave the book club open for an extra couple of days for those of you who are just hearing this podcast today. But we'd love to have you join us. That's facebook.com slash groups slash Elisa Childers Book Club. All right, we're going to jump right in with the live stream that we just did with Thaddeus Williams about his book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. So we are going to be talking with Thaddeus Williams, the author of the wonderful book, uh, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. Now, if you're watching on YouTube and you're not sure what this book club situation is all about, I want to tell you a little bit about it. So a while back when my book came out in October, I started a book club on Facebook just to provide a way for people to be able to read through my book. And we did live streams and it was really fun. And we sort of kind of loved the community that we found there. We loved uh, just the discussions that we had. We loved being able to read the books together. So we decided to just keep the book club going. And so how it's been working is we read through a book. We take about six weeks, depending on how long the book is, but we take about six weeks to, uh, to read through the book. And then at the end of our time reading through the book together, we do a live stream with the book's author. And that's what we're doing here today. So YouTubers, you get to watch us uh, do this live stream. And for those of you who are in the Facebook book club, welcome. This is the moment you've been waiting for. We've been reading through this book for six weeks. Every week we post discussion questions that we talk through, uh, just particular issues that come up as we read through different books. And so I have something very exciting to announce to you. If you are not in the book club, the book club is open right now. We open it while we're kind of gathering more people, then we close it when the book starts so that we don't get people kind of coming in halfway through. And so typically I would be announcing what the next book will be, but what I've decided to do this time, which I think will be really fun, is to wait a couple weeks, let let the uh, the what's the attendance, let the attendance of the group kind of grow. And then we're going to do a poll and you guys get to make suggestions for the next book you want to read. Everybody's going to vote and the winner will be the book that we will do next. And I'm pretty excited about that because you guys just get to choose 
the uh, the uh, the book that we'll do next. And so let's take a look at some of these comments we're getting so far uh, from Facebook. The main problem with this book, and she's uh, they're talking about confronting injustice without compromising truth. I wanted to underline everything. Me too. Me too. Excited to see what the next book is. I am too. And so uh, one other book we did was the book Tactics. And so this person just finished having a tactics discussion in our home. So that is so much fun. Uh, glad to be here for the live. Loved the book. So it's just been so much fun. And if you want to be a part of the book club for the next round, we're going to open up the group for two weeks. You can join us on Facebook and vote for the next book. We'll walk through it over six weeks. And then, God willing, we'll have a live stream with the author, unless you guys pick some kind of book with some famous person that I can't get to come on the live stream. So, you know, it'd have to be somebody we can get. But um, I look forward to see what your suggestions are. I have a few suggestions of my own, so we'll see what everybody comes up with. But for the last six weeks, we've been reading through Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. By the way, I put a link for the Facebook group in the comments on YouTube. So that's going to be facebook.com slash groups slash Alisa Childers Book Club. Okay. And this person's saying, I learned so much. Oh, you guys are going fast. I can't keep up with them. Learned so much from reading Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. It's a wonderful book. Uh, so this book is written by Thaddeus Williams, who's going to join us in just a moment. Uh, I endorse this book. It features stories from lots of people who have actually been on my podcast, people like Monique Dusan, Samuel Say, Beckett Cook, uh, Neil Shenvey. So this is a good, just a great resource. If you didn't get to read through it with us during the six weeks, I still recommend you read through this. Maybe take a listen to the live stream here, get a get a grasp of what the book's about, and maybe you that'll interest you to read a little bit more about it. But without further ado, we're going to bring our author on, Mr. Thaddeus Williams. Thaddeus, I, I have applause here. Is this it? Oh no, my my sound effects are not working. Never mind. Oh wait, I think they are. Let me see if I got applause here. No, nope. oh, never mind. Oh wait, never I'll mind. Wait. I don't have it. Do you hear it? It's like <laughs> no. everybody applaud. Thaddeus Williams, yay! <laughs> yay. Hey, did we ever settle on a uh, last time we were together and in interviewing? You said that book clubbers, I think, made your daughter, she said it was cringeworthy, I think, to refer to the group as book clubbers. Yeah. Did we land on anything better? Yeah, bookas. B-O-O-K-A-S is, is the, really, I think the only suggestion that we had, because I, I asked in there, like, people suggest, you know, and somebody yeah, said yeah. bookas, and so that's what we, that's that's kind of caught on. But All yeah, right. the, my daughter said that to call um, the book club book clubbers is so yeah. cringe so cringe so like we're well, not because i mean the the spirit of the age these days is just to invent new words so we'll, we'll go with bookas but, and that's, that's a, a great segue what a great segue into our topic for today which is your book confronting injustice without compromising truth and if you are on youtube and you want to ask a question in the live stream put in all caps question then ask your question and we're going to get to uh, as many questions from the book club bookas as we can uh, during this live stream but as you guys are sort of accumulating your questions and getting those put in there that is give us an overview if somebody's watching on youtube and they are not familiar with this book um, you talk about social justice and i think that you bring such a balanced approach to the topic Tell us a little bit about your approach to social justice and what you call social justice A and social justice B. 
Well, sure. That's a great question. I would say, um, you know, I've been in the apologetics world, much like you, for a while. And everywhere I went, it was the problem of evil. You know, how can a good God exist if there's tsunamis and pandemics and, you know, dogs that get hit by cars and, and all just the pain and suffering in the universe? How do we reconcile that with a good God's existence was the number one question I've had for 20 years. And that's changed in the last four years. Mm. You know, everywhere I go, the number one question has become, as Christians, how do we think clearly? How do we think biblically about sort of the, the raging social justice headlines of the day, uh, these trending movements in our day that's sweeping through corporations and through entertainment and the big social media companies are really pushing hard, like, as Christians, how do we think biblically has become the number one question. And so I'd heard those questions in the last few years. I'm a professor at Biola University. I teach systematic theology there. And I found that my students in the last four or five years, this has risen to the top of the list. And what really was an alarm bell for me that something needs to be written about this was seeing friends and students get swept up in today's trending social justice ideologies and then slowly but surely they would become sort of unrecognizable where before they were marked by love and joy and peace and mm. patience and the fruit of the spirit and a real passion for for missions and evangelism and the great commission instead every conversation was about how you know there's a microaggression here um, there's um, hidden systemic racism here to the point where none of the conversations were really, frankly, about Jesus and the gospel anymore. And, and I saw love and joy and peace and patience get replaced with rage and assuming the worst of other people's motives and self-righteousness and divisiveness. And so that was kind of the light bulb moment for me that, look, something's got to be said. I, I see this ideology sweeping through churches around the country and around the world. I see it sweeping through Christian education at an alarming rate. And I realized that a lot of the responses out there were very um, vitriolic and, mm. and not super helpful. There's a lot, a lot of name calling going on in the other direction too. And so I just decided, look, I, I care like you deeply about the gospel. We got to get the gospel right. It's the best news in the universe. We can't lose that. I care deeply like you about the godhood of God. If we're bowing down to some idol, that's going to distort and skew our vision of what justice means. I care deeply about church unity. And I hear weekly from pastors around the country whose churches are splitting down the middle over these questions. And so that, that was really my motive in writing this was let's draw a basic distinction between social justice A, let's just call that the biblical kind, you know, social justice A for awesome or whatever. Social justice B is the bad kind. It's, it's a lot of what's trendy these days that as Christians, um, we need to be super discerning about, super aware of, to be able to lovingly engage folks on these deep questions. So that's the basic distinction that runs through the book. Social justice, A, let's rally behind it. Social justice, B, let's be really cautious, discerning, and reject what is anti-gospel 
under that banner of social justice. And I do appreciate that about your message because I think so often Christians just hear the phrase social justice or even just the word justice. And because of some of the abuses, I think, of that phrase and that word that we see in culture, even in secular culture and even in the church in certain places, um, there can almost be like a, a recoiling against um, sure. any type of justice biblically. And I love that you bring in, you keep tying in what justice looks like biblically, which is, and I'm so glad you gave us that way to remember A and B, because I always think, now wait, is it A? Is A the good one? Or is B the, and so awesome and bad. Social justice, awesome. Social justice, bad. That's really good. I like that. So um, yeah. And so part of um, what you describe in social justice B would be something that we've talked about on the podcast quite a bit called critical race theory, critical theory. Yeah. And so I, I have a question here from uh, from someone in our book club. It says here, schools in my area are are starting to talk about CRT teaching. I'm so frustrated. So Thaddeus, give us a, just an overview for anybody. I mean, it, it seems like everybody's hearing the phrase CRT everywhere now, critical race theory. Um, yeah. And sometimes we just use these words without really defining them. So what is CRT? Just a quick overview of what that is. And then what advice would you give to parents who may be sending kids to schools where this is being taught? Sure. Yeah, that's a huge, huge question, but I'll take a crack at it. Um, so, so I'd start by saying, here's what CRT is not. If somebody says racism is a problem that Christians should care about profoundly, that doesn't automatically equal CRT because that's where a lot of the conversation just stalls out from the very beginning is you have a Christian saying, Hey, racism is still a problem. And we automatically like the buzzers go off, the alarm bells go off. And it's like, okay, well you've clearly bought into critical race theory. And, and we just need the nuance and the charity to, to see through that, that there are valid concerns about racism that need to be taken seriously, especially by Christians. Um, so that's, that's where I'd start. Um, CRT does not equal, I'm identifying racism as a sin that's still around, but what CRT is, is it's a very distinctive way of identifying racism. And one of the marks of a CRT perspective, number one, is that humanity is best understood, not along biblical lines, Romans three. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When Paul's writing that, he's writing to a context of deep inter-ethnic inter strife where Jews are looking down their nose at non-Jews because we have the law. Gentiles are looking down their nose at Jews. And Paul isn't going to have any of that kind of ethnic identity theology going on, identity politics or anything. So he builds his argument in Romans chapter 1 and 2, the crescendos in chapter 3, to say, look, Jews, you have the law. You've got the Torah and you break it. So you need redemption. You can't pat yourself on the back for your Jewishness and think that somehow that gets you right with God. And oh, by the way, Gentiles, non-Jews, you don't have the law in the form of the Torah, but you do have the law written in your heart. And oh, newsflash, you break that too. So you need grace. So, so Paul does this uniting thing where he draws everybody together to say, you can't play these ethnic games of self-righteousness. All have fallen short. Therefore, there's a single solution, and that is the grace of God through Jesus. Well, CRT does the opposite. Mm. 
Mm. It divides humanity up into oppressor versus oppressed groups. And so if you are white, it doesn't matter your individual story. You could have been, you know, raised in, in a mobile home in the desert with two cents to your name. But just by virtue of your lack of melanin in your skin cells, you're the oppressor. So, so it, it starts by treating individuals as exemplar of their, as exemplars or ciphers of their identity group. Mm. That's in all the critical race theory literature I've read, that's kind of CRT 101. So if you're male, then regardless of your actual life experience or your lived experience as CRT would say, it doesn't matter. You're, you're male. So you're part of the system of patriarchal oppression. If you're straight, then it doesn't matter if you actually love family members or friends who are in the LGBTQ community. That's irrelevant. By virtue of being straight, you are part of the oppressor class over and against the oppressed LGBTQ community. Um, and the list goes on and on if you're able-bodied and, mm. and so on. So that's the first major point of distinction is biblically we are one in Adam, which means all of sin, therefore all need grace and repentance and reconciliation. In the social justice, be critical race theory mindset, you know, you read Robin DiAngelo's um, White Fragility and some of her other works, and she has just handy charts that will say, these people are the oppressors, these people are the oppressed. Mm. That's the first major difference. Really quickly, um, a, a second major difference is in a biblical view, it champions love that's not easily offended, right? We've all heard the wedding verse, like 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. Um, love is not easily offended. Well, in all the CRT literature I've read, and not so much just the literature, but watching firsthand the effect it has on people, it makes them chronically offended because it, it draws from... Um, what's called the deconstructionism of Michel Foucault, who was a French mm -hmm. um, postmodern philosopher who said everything's about power all the time. And so the postmodernist job is to tear away the mask, to, to unmask the power play that's really going on. And so you have, the, as this is making its way into Christian communities, you know, if a white pastor cites Calvin, if I've been trained by CRT, then I have to unmask that, not as a true theological statement, but purely as, well, this is a power play of a white guy citing another white guy to keep black and brown people down. And that's just the way you have to now interpret all of reality. So uh, I'd say that's that's a huge difference because it encourages people to be chronically triggered mm. and offended in a way that just the fallout I've seen with with friends and students, it's it's just not good for their souls. Um, and I know I've been blabbing on and hogging the mic here, but real, real quickly, a third distinction. Um, there's a lot of talk these days about CRT. It's not a worldview. It's just a tool. And it can be a useful tool for spotting systemic racism, system, systemic injustice or oppression. And that's and so this new phrase has kind of gone mainstream in the last two months which is, hey, let's let's chew the meat and spit out the bones. Those are people who are trying to sort of extend the olive branch and say, look, we can bring different sides together here. 
And so, you know, through writing the book and, and thinking long and hard about this and, and talking to a lot of um, brothers and sisters who don't share my lack of melanin and hearing them, here's the conclusion I'm landing on is that if you think, let, let's just grant for the sake of our conversation that critical race theory is just a tool for spotting injustice. It's not a comprehensive worldview. I would dispute that claim, but let's just grant it. Well, think of another tool that's used for spotting injustice. Um, think of a black light. When crime scene investigators walk into a hotel room, maybe there's been a murder, they turn off all the lights, they flip on a black light, and that's supposed to show evidence of injustice that would be um, that would be lost to the blind, naked eye. So we use this tool. And that could be really useful. Like, oh, here's some blood splatter that we missed, and that's going to help us find the actual perpetrator of injustice. But the way I think about critical race theory, it's a broken black light. Hmm. Critical race theory is a broken black light. And what I mean by that is you flip off the lights in society, you, you turn on your critical race theory injustice detector, and it can't distinguish between like what's a mustard stain on the wall and what's actual blood spatter. And because it defines any disparate impact, um, any disparate outcome as automatically that's racist, that's sexist, that's some form of oppression. And so that means a lot of things that actually aren't unjust are going to be identified as a blood spatter on the wall where now CRT is going to start hunting down the perpetrators and oftentimes finding the wrong perpetrators because the black light is busted. But part of what's busted about CRT is it will misidentify some, you know, mustard or ketchup stain as blood on the one hand. But on the other hand, it's such a broken tool that it can't recognize real blatant injustice that's right in, in front of the black light. So, so for example, um, in the black community, we have in the ballpark of 20 victims a year of black image bearers of God who are shot by cops who aren't armed and aren't fleeing the scene in the ballpark of 18 to 20 for the last five years, you know, based on the Washington post data on this. Well, according to an article I was reading, researching this morning on this, you have about 360,000, tiny black image bearers with black skin who are terminated by the abortion industry in this country every year, 360,000 mm. to the point where if um, Planned Parenthood, if you want to talk about systemic racism, all the government dollars Planned Parenthood receives to perpetrate its founder, Margaret Sanger's racist vision, which is why Planned Parenthood sets up 80% of its clinics in minority neighborhoods, mm and wipes out a disproportionate amount of uh, image bearers with more melanin. If you want to just look at the hard facts on that, we're looking at, if Black Lives Matter to us, we're looking at 360,000 Black lives terminated by a government-funded abortion industry. And then there's 18. And yes, we should grieve and lament the 18 um, who were victims of, say, deadly police force. 
But if uh, what I find in a lot of Christian circles is, see, we're virtue signaling about these 18, so we think Black Lives Matter. If we're oblivious to the 360,000, then we can't claim to be on the right side of justice or the right side of history or the right side of truth. Mm. And so to me, that that's a mark of CRT and why it's not only a flawed worldview for reasons I get into in the book, but why it's also a broken tool because it misidentifies injustice and the black light can't spot the massive injustice staring us all in the face to the tune of there would be, I was reading an article this morning about 15 million more black Americans in this country, 15 million more if it weren't for the injustice of the abortion industry. And that's nothing you, you would ever read about in CRT literature. Yeah, no, and that is incredibly helpful. In fact, if anyone wants to dive a little bit deeper into that topic, I do have a podcast called Black Lives Matter and Abortion with Samuel Say, who also his story is featured in this book as well. Uh, so you can go back into the archives and and find that. it's a That was a particularly powerful episode uh, I felt uh, Samuel did such a great job explaining all of that, and you've just done a, a tremendous job helping us understand. I think that black light is a great analogy, uh, you know, metaphor to think about this. Um, so we have, speaking of your contributors to your book here, we have a question from one of the people whose story yes. is featured here. This Miss Monique Dusan wants to know, when are you buying Monique more pineapple pizza? <laughs> well, for her stellar efforts as a forearm model. Oh, yeah, that's see, right. These are her arms. Monique's yeah, arms. Yeah, talked about that. She, uh, yeah, world-class thinker on these issues and world-class forearm model. Yes. Um, soon, when you respond to my text messages, oh. the one I sent you this morning, oh, oh, oh you got oh. called out. Oh, well, I'll, tell, I'll, I'll raise, I'll, I'll raise you, Monique. I will buy you pineapple pizza, uh, May 21st through the 23rd. How's this for a segue? Monique and I both will be speaking at a conference in Dallas, Fort Worth area. Wilberforce, uh, right? The Wilberforce. Yeah. It's the Wilberforce weekend from the Colson center. So if anybody's interested in either registering for that conference online or, uh, registering in person, you can go to, let me see here. So you use the link if you, I, I don't know what the, I guess WilberforceWeekend.org, and you can use the promo code uh, WFW21, that's Wilberforce Weekend 21 Childers, and you'll get 15% off. So that's WFW21 Childers for 15% off your tuition there at WilberforceWeekend.org. So that's coming up um, May 21 through 23, and Monique's going to be specifically talking about how the um, image of God relates with some of these topics that we're discussing today. And my talk will be how progressive Christianity redefines the Imago Day, so that should be pretty interesting. But let's get into some of these other questions. Well, wait, uh, real quick, just yes. in case there's any viewers out there who have yet to hear of Monique and her ministry, Center for Biblical Unity. I think it's a dot org now, if I'm not mistaken. Center for Biblical Unity. You can find them on Facebook. You want to talk about like top notch quality resources? Because the last question, the part I didn't get to, was like. How do we help our kids who are going to yeah. school where this stuff is being sort of jammed down their throat, um, you know, in 
the time we have today, I can't go deep into that. But yeah. you know, who does go really deep into that is the Center for Biblical Unity yes. and Monique Dusan. So check out their work. They have a ton of resources, just like And they're coming um, out with a curriculum, which I've yes. reviewed and it's phenomenal. So go to it's centerforbiblicalunity.com and their new curriculum that's coming out is called Reconciled, a Biblical Approach to Racial Unity. Get this for your churches, everybody, and start going through this curriculum because it is going to really help sort of bring unity surrounded and rooted in truth and in biblical truth and biblical justice and all of that good stuff. So uh, centerforbiblicalunity.com, just a little plug there for our friend uh, Monique, who her her ministry has just been taking off, and I'm so glad because she's got such an important message. Uh, Here's a really good question. Um, It says, some well-known atheists such as Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, have spoken against the rise of identity politics or have disagreed with certain social justice movements. Why do you think that's the case? Why do you think they're doing that? Why are atheists on our side on this? What's that? Why are atheists on our side here? Yeah, it is a strange bedfellows for sure. Um, Let me say this. So CRT... The, the deeper I dug into the, the source material on it, the more it's clear that because it, it wears those lenses where everything is racism all the time. You know, Robin D'Angelo says that it's never a question of if racism is present here. It's always a question of how is racism manifesting here. And so it's circular. It presupposes what it's trying to prove. Like everything's racist all the time. Well, if everything's racist, that means science is racist. And there's a lot of CRT scholars who have spilled a lot of ink trying to argue that science itself is white supremacist. The laws of logic, um, reasoning, subjecting truth claims to evidentiary standards. All this is part of the hegemonic system of white power. Um, And it replaces let's test things by reason, science, facts, and evidence with standpoint epistemology, which I talk about a little bit in the book, but the basic idea is those in the hierarchy of oppression um, who stands in the most oppressed identity group simultaneously, you know, with intersectionality coming into play. So if I'm black, transgender, disabled, and Muslim, I'm like, I'm, I might as well be the Pope speaking ex cathedra. You know, I I might as well be in in a Protestant worldview. I might as well be um, the authoritative 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. Um, So, so your credibility is in direct proportion to your level of perceived oppression, given the matrices of oppression as taught by CRT. And the, the opposite is also true. So Elisa has a little more insight because she's female, you know, given the XX chromosomes versus XY chromosomes. Um, I, I'm the least credible person ever <laughs> because I'm straight, I'm Protestant, I'm male, I'm white. Like uh, on CRT, it, it, um, it makes my insight utterly irrelevant based on these contingent factors of my identity. So to the question, Dawkins and Harris care about science. 
They think objective truth is possible. They think basic genetic distinctions between male and female, that's just basic science. It's basic biology. And so when you have an ideology that's denying basic science, it does create this, you know, strange set of uh, sort of what Francis Schaeffer would have called um, co-belligerence, that we can be opposed to an ideology, even if we're coming at it from very different perspectives. You know, Dawkins got canceled. His Humanist of the Year Award was rescinded last week because he made what five years ago would have been an uncontroversial statement about human biology. So it, it does create some uh, interesting uh, and I think actually promising allies in this time. I've been watching, you know, Monique and I were on the Babylon Bee not too long ago. And a few weeks before that, they had interviewed the atheist James Lindsay, mm -hmm. uh, who co-wrote with Helen Pluckrose, Cynical Theories, yep. which is a great resource. If you really want to understand the roots of a lot of this stuff going on in your churches and your kids' schools, I, I would put that in my top five resources, even if it's written by people who um, still have a ways to go on the God question, mm -hmm. I'd say. Yeah, that's very good. Here's a great question that I I, um, I think a lot of people probably wonder about. So this question is in regard to Appendix G, where Jesus talks about the poor. Is he only talking about finances, or does poor refer to those lacking in non-material things, or does it mean something else? What does Jesus mean when, or you know, even in Scripture when it says he ca he came to preach good news to the poor? What does that word poor mean in the Bible? Is it just relating to finances or something else? Yeah, that is a fantastic question. So I would say it's sort of a both and. So in Luke's gospel, um, his version of the Beatitudes are, are blessed are the poor, right? Matthew's version, blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, so there's, there, and I think both are actually true to the original um message of Jesus. And, and he, he seems to highlight both throughout the course of his ministry. Um, so, so I think if we're taking social justice, a seriously, right, the awesome kind, the, the biblically, biblically compatible kind, then our approach to fighting injustice should be more holistic. And, and let me give just one really concrete example of what that would look like in the real world. Uh, in the 21st century. Um, so there, the, this story is in a, a book called When Helping Hurts. And I think it's a really powerful story. Um, there was a predominantly white church where their facilities were essentially across the street from a predominantly black neighborhood. And so they said like, well, we should help because we have a lot more resources. So here's an idea. How about every Christmas we buy up all the best toys and then, you know, Christmas Eve, we'll walk across the street and we'll knock on doors and we'll just give out free presents. And the mentality was we're leaving, we're alleviating uh, material poverty because poverty was primarily being construed as material or economic. Well, the first couple of years they did this, this church found that when they would knock on these doors, uh, their black neighbors, the, the fathers would never answer the door. It, from as far as they could tell, there weren't black fathers in the home. 
And over the years, that started to turn into sort of resentment. Like, why are we helping them and picking up the slack for all these like black dads who were just bailing on their own families? Well, what they found um, eventually was that it wasn't that the black fathers in that community weren't home. It was that as these black fathers hear a knock at the door and it's white people coming to give their kids Christmas presents, there's a certain, yes, you're, you're limiting the poverty, the economic or material poverty for a moment, but there's this other biblical category that um, Fickert and Corbet call poverty of being, which is there's something that actually increases the poverty, the, the holistic poverty of these fathers to, to be able to say like, well, we're the white saviors. We're going to step in and we're going to give your kids a great Christmas because you can't. Uh, and so it inadvertently, you know, it's not that the white church had bad intentions, but it inadvertently added to the net poverty of being while only temporarily alleviating a, an economic form of poverty. And so eventually what this church learned was like, wait a second, like God loves every tongue, tribe, and nation. God is already at work in these places. There's already a ton of gifts in, in these communities. And so instead of like this savior approach, like we will condescend to you and bestow, you know, Xboxes upon your children and tickle me Elmo's upon your, like, instead it was like, how about we just treat each other like fellow image bearers and, and love each other as equals. And, and once they started doing that, like, real good happened. And, and so I would say that's one of the biggest problems with critical race theory um, and its policy solutions is they don't have that robust biblical view of poverty where it can be material poverty and spiritual poverty, poverty of being simultaneously. And so if a fully orbed Christian approach would take all of that very seriously. Because otherwise, we, we think we're helping when in a lot of cases, we're actually just hurting. Yeah. Well, we're going to get to some more questions. But again, if you're watching and you want to join the book club to help choose the next book we're going to read through over six weeks and then end up doing a live stream with the author, you can go to facebook.com slash groups slash Alisa Childers Book Club. And uh, there are some questions you must answer in order to be admitted into the group. So this is not just a sort of a free-for-all for everybody coming from all different worldviews to discuss books. We, we want like-minded people. So there are belief statements to affirm and things like that. But please answer the questions. Get into the group. Help us choose the next book uh, that we're going to read. Uh, but we'll continue with questions here. So Thaddeus, there's a bunch of questions that I think can be summed up with this one question. So a lot of people have this on their hearts and minds regarding um, the, the how question. You know, your book is so informational about what these different types of social justice are, what the, the implications are. And I think so many people have the how question in mind. So I'll ask you this one because it sums up a bunch of questions, but it's what are your suggestions for approaching professing Christians who are espousing social justice be the bad kind in order to help them understand that it's not biblical, particularly friends, family, uh, people you know well. And you know, people are asking about how do we do this with, with students who are in college or maybe high school, how can we help people, at least who claim to be Christian, um, yeah. to understand that this type of social justice is not biblical? Yeah. Uh, my first bit of advice there is 
social media is almost never the place for that to happen. Mm. Um, I, I have just an experience in the last two weeks where one of my closest friends, she married my best friend. Um, we've known each other since high school. And she posted some things about a certain progressive Christian who I'll keep nameless um, saying, yeah, his story really just impacted me. And so I responded with a basic like, hey, friend of 25 plus years, um, you might want to be careful with that particular teacher um, because a lot of the stuff he says has just gone really, really far in ways that um, that threaten the gospel that you and I both cherish. And you would have thought I, I entered the conversation with a tiny little mustache, you know, saying Sieg Heil, like the, the way the the comment thread went um, was just kind of something that wouldn't have happened like four or five years ago. Mm. Um, and I realized as I tried to, cause everybody was saying like, well, how does that honor her comment? And I'm like, well, it's actually really honoring if you love somebody and you see them like, you know, really getting swept up into a certain thinker and you've read that thinkers every book and you know, there's danger there. Love dictates that as kindly and winsomely as possible, you're going to point it out. But but the definition, the redefinition of love undergirding the conversation was, well, if you're doing that, clearly you 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 hate her and you're dishonoring her. So this this went back and forth. And finally, um, I just I reached out to her and I was like, hey, you know, bring bring your husband over. Let's just let's hang out. Let's sit in the courtyard, and I know you've been on this journey thinking about racial justice. You know, I know you've been reading a lot of um, Jamar Tisby and Robin D'Angelo, and, and you're getting into this stuff. Let's just sit and have the conversation. And so we sat literally 10 feet away from where I'm sitting right now, and we just had the conversation. And she was able, because it was face-to-face -face and not the the impersonal medium of social media, I felt like she felt sincerely heard. And one of the biggest parts of that in these conversations is the minute you even begin to push back, just understand that the assumption of most people is going to be essentially you're alt-right, you're complicit with white supremacy, you don't care about racism, you don't care about justice. There's just certain go-to categories that you will be thrown into, which on social media are really hard to um, debunk because people really aren't there to hear the other side. Mm. Uh, and so I found that just by sitting five feet from each other and having the conversation, she was able to see like, oh, wow, all these stereotypes I had built up in you in my head about why you would question the narrative I'm increasingly buying into those are actually all false and you've actually done your homework on this. And, and so it turned into like a really fruitful conversation. And my wife and I are having them over later this week to go up the street and play pickleball. And like, it just in the context of relationship, the conversation gets 10,000 times further uh, than through impersonal mediums like social media. So that, that's my first bit of wisdom. Do it face to face. My second just quick insight is um, 
one of the best ways to debunk the stereotype that you just don't care about racism because you don't accept the social justice be account of racism is to start these kinds of conversations by affirming what is true in your friends or coworkers or whoever, your, your family member's position. And, and in affirming that loud and clear and emphatically and saying like, look, the Bible condemns partiality. The Bible condemns the rich exploiting the poor. And so I am 100% on board with you in being for justice. Now let's talk. Did you see how that's different? And now people are willing to sort of open up and realize like, okay, I can't just chalk you up as some neo-Nazi now or some yeah. you know, far-right extremist. We, we share something. We have a point of contact in our mutual concern for justice. So if you see it differently from me, let me hear you out. Um, yeah, that's my two bits of advice. Is number good. one, don't no, do it on social good. media. Number two, start with something you agree on. But really, really briefly, and number three is don't be afraid to just tell the truth. Like, like the more that this book has been out and I've been hearing feedback and seeing the reaction of some people who are further left, it's this isn't a time to try to um, just sugarcoat everything. It really is a time to tell the truth without being a jerk. Mm -hmm. There's certain things that just need to be called out. Like the fact that Black Lives Matter, the organization, identifies as trained Marxists. The fact that their, their website basically says the nuclear family needs to be decimated. The fact that they are in bold, staunch support of the abortion industry that exploits black communities. That there's a certain point in these conversations when you just need to shoot straight with people and say, look, it's not because I don't think Black Lives Matter that I oppose Black Lives Matter, the organization. It's precisely because I think Black Lives Matter that I think these ideologies are are devastating on our brothers and sisters of color. So. Very good. All right. Another question here. Um, this is a good one, too. I've heard the, herm, the term decolonization from uh, social justice warriors and critical race theorists. Um, what, what does that mean? Decol we hear it like we need to decolonize our faith or we need to decolonize our theology. What does that mean? What does it mean to have a colonized theology? Sure. So, so the basic idea, um, as I understand it, is... If you throw out a term like decolonization, you're, you're doing two things simultaneously. Number one, you're, you're, you're signaling to people that you're woke. You know, you're signaling that, that you've read your James Cone, you've read your Ibram X. Kendi, you've read your Robin DiAngelo. Um, so, so it's sort of one of those signaling type terms. But the second thing you're doing with the term like that is you're essentially writing yourself a blank check to, to support any position, no matter how heterodox or heretical it might be. Because you can always push back at anybody who pushes back to you by saying they're colonized and you're just, you're just in this decolonizing project. So, so let me get a little more concrete with that. Let's take the best news in the universe, the gospel. Sinners like us 
depraved sinners like us who, who we weren't neutral. It's not like God looked down and we were sort of on the fence and he was like, Hey, come believe in me. Scripture teaches we were at enmity with God. We, we were hostile to God. We were enemies with God. We sort of had like spiritual middle fingers extended in the face of our creator when Christ died for us, when, when God extended his saving grace, we were hostile. We were enemies. And, and now we're saved thanks to the substitutionary death, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. We're saved by grace. That's good news for everybody. That is good news for everybody. But under the banner of decolonization, I've, I've heard some scholars who, who lean more CRT do this kind of thing where, oh, well, that's just, that's a colonized gospel. That's the white man's gospel. That's what um, Luther was teaching. That's what a white man like Calvin was teaching and a white man like like Zwingli was teaching and, and Booser and, and Beza and Melanchthon and so on. And so that's to me is how that term is actually being used right now is a way to be able to say, let's take an essential Christian doctrine like salvation by grace alone through the substitutionary death and bodily resurrection of Jesus. Well, we can't just flat out reject that without people, you know, recognizing that we're preaching a different gospel. But if we use this term, all we're really doing is decolonizing our theology. We're liberating it from white supremacy. Now it gives a strategy to make its way into more mainstream Christian circles to say, look, this is just the white man's gospel. And, you know, our mutual friend Monique Dusan has done a lot of great work on showing that, look, that gospel, it's not white. It doesn't have a pigmentation. It doesn't have a, mel a melanin level. It's just the gospel as clearly taught in scripture. And so that that's my interpretation of the term decolonizing. It becomes a blank check to smuggle in whatever doctrines you want, because if you find a white person who endorses a doctrine that you disagree with, you can just chalk them up to being a colonizer mm -hmm. and, and evade the real issue, which is what does scripture teach? Yeah. And I think too, like, as I've thought about that term, it's one of those terms that gets used a lot and hardly ever gets defined. It's sure. sort of like the term social justice. It's like the term, uh, lots of terms that we see, we hear the phrase Christian nationalism thrown out all over the place, and you almost never um, hear anybody succinctly define that. So it almost just becomes a an insult you can lob at someone who disagrees with you on someone. And, you know, I suppose in some sense, if your theology um, is is sort of married to a political system where you're looking to the government to save you on either side, right or left, yeah. you know, that could be a colonization of your theology of sorts. And that would be something you'd want to decolonize, certainly, to make it more biblical and more in line with historic Christianity. But I think you're right, very often when that term is used, they don't necessarily just mean that. They're actually talking about the actual gospel. And there's a really good question. Well, it's I think somebody started to ask this question, but I think I know where they're going, so I'll ask you this. Um, and we hear this a lot. People um, maybe on, on one side of things say, you know, we as Christians need to do social justice. This is the heart of the gospel. And then there are other Christians saying, no, 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 just preach the gospel. You hear that term a lot. And I, I think there's misunderstandings on both sides. Um, but, you know, here's it looks like they were starting to ask about that. I hear people saying a lot that the gospel is enough. What's your response to that, Thaddeus? Yeah. 
well, let me let me first say this will tie the last question together with this one is what I find happening with that language of decolonizing is <clears throat> it's sort of it, it's becoming the new trendy buzzword, much like um, white fragility, you know, whiteness is wickedness, white privilege. All, all of these terms, um, which, by the way, you know, we talked about this last time um, we got together, you know, all of them were invented by white feminist scholars on the very far left. Yeah, there's actually a video on my YouTube channel where where yeah, you kind where of you say who, who they all are, where these terms came from. But just if people want to watch that, it's, it was very eye opening. But go ahead and continue. And so that really is um, a lot of Christians are being duped into thinking well, if I'm using these terms, then I'm I'm attuned to, quote, the black voice. And I hear every week from black brothers and sisters in Christ who are just sick and tired of their voice being hijacked by far left white liberalism. They're just done with it. They're exhausted from it. Um, and their, their voices are, you know, a lot of the language you'll find in social justice B is, we need to, to center voices of color. And the more I've been in this conversation, it's very clear what they really mean by that, is we want to center voices of color like Ta-Nehisi Coates, um, who, who will push our political ideology. If you're Sam Say, if your name is Monique Dusan, if your name is Edwin Ramirez, if your name is Freddie Cardoza or any of the other co-authors of my book, they get called names on a regular basis. You want to talk about marginalization? Mm. They are severely, severely marginalized. Um, so any, anyway, all that to say, I think colonization and decolonization is becoming the next word in the lexicon aside white fragility, white privilege, and so forth, where it's, it's, a, it's the ultimate conversation stopper, Right. If I'm arguing for social justice B and somebody disagrees with me, I don't have to like think hard about their viewpoint. I don't have to really study it in any depth. All I need to do is memorize about a dozen terms and I become the instant expert. I can just say, oh, you disagree only because you suffer from white fragility or you're a colonizer or I'm saying some things here that are um, outside the pale of historic Christian orthodoxy. Oh, and you're calling me out on that? Well, you're you're the colonizer. I'm just trying to decolonize my faith. So I, I think it's a, it's frankly an insidious term mm. um, in, in its effect. So to the question, you know, what about social justice and its relationship to the gospel? I would say if we're starting with scripture, we need to keep the first thing, the first thing. Scripture itself defines its own first thing in 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul says um, to the church at Corinth, he says, I passed on to you what was of first importance. In Greek, it's it's en protois. This is the, the chief concern, priority number one. And then he cites this creed, which is, I think, um, based on my homework on the question, I think it's actually the oldest church creed we have yeah. um, because it's Aramaic, because the Greek reads so clunky. It's a very, very early church creed that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third, third day, that he appeared, 
Um, so it's a, it's a substitutionary death and a bodily resurrection. So sinners like us can be saved by grace. That's the first thing according to the Spirit-inspired scriptures. But saying it's the first thing doesn't mean it's the only thing, right? We wouldn't want to say, um, well, I'm saved by grace, so truth-telling is now irrelevant to the Christian. Um, so, like, the gospel is the first thing, so being faithful to my spouse is no longer relevant to me as a Christian. No, I now want to obey these divine commands, not suggestions, not to become saved, but because I'm saved, right? And I think that's the proper relationship. It's the old uh, Martin Luther claim that I'm saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone, mm-hmm. meaning that I'm not saved by my works, but if I'm genuinely saved by trusting Jesus, that will manifest itself in a life of works. Not perfectly, um, but that will be manifest where now I'm doing good works out of gratitude that I've been saved as this free gift and not out of fear. And so I would say doing justice is in the same category. Because I'm saved, I want to be a voice for the voiceless who are terminated by the abortion industry. That doesn't mean I'm making anti-abortion activism the gospel, but it is a natural extension of the gospel. If I believe that I'm saved by grace alone, I want to go to um, to places where people are genuine victims of real racism and do something about that. I, I personally have spent time in Nepal where I have dear friends who are victims of the racist um, caste system who are considered untouchables and Dalits. My faith propels me to do something about that. That's not the gospel, but it's an extension of being saved by the gospel. Just like in the first century, Christians didn't go to the literal human dumps to take abandoned infants into their homes as cherished sons and daughters. They didn't do that because they thought they were being saved by it. They did it because they were saved. God adopted us when we were unwanted. Let's go adopt these unwanted people of society. So, yeah, I think the gospel is first. And when you get the gospel right, then all these other divine commands can actually be carried out in a way that that doesn't become self-righteous. That's very good. Well, we've got a few minutes left here. And one, one thing I'd like to do, you mentioned your friends in Nepal. Is that the family that you started the GoFundMe for? Yes. Is that that's still going one. on? We'll that is the- 100%. Still okay, going so on. we're going to put the link uh, to that GoFundMe in yes. the comments. Um, I've shared that a couple of times, and and my ministry has contributed to that, and I encourage everybody else to contribute to uh, this family in Nepal, and we'll post that link for everyone uh, just as soon as we close up here. I'll post that for everybody. We're going to end Re- with— Really, a- really, really yes. quick. Yes. I know we'll, we'll get to another question, but just to—, to- um, tell a bit of Suresh's story, like the 60-second version. Yeah. I met him at the Monkey Temple in Kathmandu. Mm, man, this is dating myself, but like 20 years ago, I met him. He was a Hindu. He was a Dalit, an untouchable, and was deeply depressed because he knew his karma wasn't good enough to be born higher class in the next life. And so we spent about six hours walking the steps of the monkey temple in Kathmandu. 
I just shared the gospel with him. And by the grace of God, like the Holy Spirit flipped the on switch in his heart. He got saved. He went to seminary. Um, he graduated with his master's in theology. Um, he's married. They have a little, not so little anymore, a little boy named Thaddeus Budapriti, who is, uh, I think, 14 now. Um, they took in another Dalit girl off the streets who was, you know, sleeping in the gutter. They took her into their family. Um, and they just had about two years ago, another baby girl named little Evangelina that my wife and I, <laughs> they Facebooked us one morning, like, Hey, our baby's born. Will you name our baby? And we're like, what? <laughs> he wants to name your baby? Like, no, thank you. But that's, that's, asking a lot and so eventually they insisted so little evangelina which means the gospel the good news uh, so they're just a dear family but they're still fighting racism and bigotry every day yeah. and so through the book he's one of the co-authors of the book um, he shares his story in there there's there's a link in the book and it, uh, it's going to be posted in in the thread here in the I just posted it there. So it's in the YouTube thread. My Facebook group already has it, but I posted it in the YouTube thread. If anyone wants to, I just encourage you to please give to that um, yep. to that family. And uh, so we're going to end with a question from uh, Krista Bontrager. So her question is, what should Christian parents do about so many Christian colleges adopting policies and hiring faculty that affirm social justice be and critical race theory? What What should... What would your advice be to parents um, who have maybe kids going to colleges where this is starting to kind of creep in? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, make make your voice heard as as loud as possible. That we need to stay true to the historic Christian faith. We need to recognize the problem for what it is, which is that a lot of um, institutions of Christian higher education have sociology departments and humanities departments um, where professors are coming in who got their degree at a secular institution that it's just the unquestioned orthodoxy. It is the established gospel of those departments that CRT is true and that disparate outcomes mean systemic injustice and systemic racism and so I think Christian universities and schools need to do the hard work of integrating faith and learning. That, that's a buzzword at a lot of Christian universities, integration of faith and learning. But from my experience, a lot of professors haven't really done that. Or if they have, it's here's this pre-existing shell of some ideology I picked up in graduate school. Now let me just jam Christianity inside of that. And so, you know, I, I experienced this a lot firsthand and it is extremely alarming. And it really takes me back a hundred years ago when, you know, at that point, the Princetons and the Harvards and the Browns were like rock solid institutions committed to the historic Christian faith. And then along comes an ideology that's marketing itself as we care about you know, the, the tagline back then was the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Like, who's going to be against that? Yeah. So they came up with clever marketing and slowly but surely, you know, denied the authority of scripture, denied the bodily resurrection, denied the miraculous, all in the name of 
we need to get with the times. We need to reinvent Christianity to be palatable with the spirit of the age. And the spirit of the age 100 years ago was if you're going to be taken seriously in the academic world, you have to deny the miraculous. And so many Christian universities completely went through an identity crisis and came out the other end no longer recognizable as Christian institutions. The exact same thing is happening universities who want to be, they don't want to be considered on quote the wrong side of history. And so they're saying, well, let's, um, let's accept the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, so that we can have the world's applause and the world's acclaim. And I just got to tell you, I mean, there's all kinds of hard stats on this, that the, the seminaries and the Christian universities that are saying, we aren't going to budge to woke ideology. We're going to stay true to our mission and teach biblical justice and biblical theology. The enrollment at those schools, I won't name names, but their enrollment is skyrocketing. I will name a name here, um, seminaries like Fuller, Fuller used to be considered a, a well-respected evangelical institution. And they bought into this, let's, let's ride the crest of the cultural wave right now. And I've, I've seen the hard facts on enrollment, they're plummeting. Because at the end of the day, there's so many Christians who are just like, look, we're done with all this ideology that's sweeping through our churches and through our, through our education. Can we just teach the biblical worldview? And so it, it is the universities that stick to their guns that are really going to have an impact in the 21st century. That's good. So good question, and, Krista. Yeah, that was a good question. And I will just say, you know, and and we'll we'll say first of all, Thaddeus, thank you so much for joining us for our live yeah. stream. I know that it's just been such a joy for all of our book. Uh, I just keep wanting to call them book clubbers, but it's cringy. <laughs> My daughter said it's cringy. Bookas. Um, you know, we're just so thankful for you taking the time. We've really enjoyed taking six weeks to read through your book, and I'm excited for uh, the book club to go on and, and figure out what our next book is going to be. But we're going to say goodbye to Thaddeus for now. And I just want to say on the heels of what he was saying about the universities, I got a great answer for parents who are looking for a place to send their kids, send them to Southern Evangelical Seminary. That is um, a, a, a university that is standing strong in this. They've taken a position paper uh, on social justice. You can look that up online. Uh, they're standing really strong with the gospel. Don't forget get to get Thaddeus's book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. And as a little, I love that, that Thaddeus mentioned that fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man. This is something that Jay Gresham Mason was addressing in 1923 in his book, Christianity and Liberalism. He called it the universal brotherhood of mankind. And a teaser, that is going to be one of the main focuses of the talk I'm giving at the Image Restored Conference at the Colson Center's Wilberforce Weekend. And so that's happening May 21st through the 23rd. If you go to wilberforceweekend.org, you can use the promo code uh, WFW20. Oh gosh, now I, I just got to make sure this is right. But you, I have a promo code on my Instagram page that will get you 15% off of your uh, tuition. So that's WFW21Childers for 15% off at wilberforceweekend.org. I'll be talking about the universal... Uh, 
brotherhood of mankind that Jake Ershamation was talking about as well. Thank you all so much for joining us and we will see you next time. God bless you. <laughs>